Amen. Thanks for praying for us, Joanne. Well, if you have your Bible, please do turn with me to Psalm 127. It'll be helpful for you to have that open and in front of you as we work down through it. On Wednesday evening past, we met together as a church family to discuss moving on with our vision to rebuild, to build a new church building on the front of our site. Planning permission has just been approved for this venture, and we're, we were seeking to make sure that we're all on the same page as we seek to press on. In light of this, what was a very important meeting, and with this project in view, instead of pressing on into Daniel 8, the series we're working through, I thought it would be helpful to hit pause on that series and to revisit a psalm that is given to remind us how much we need God in any venture we undertake in life, whether it be the project of just building our individual lives or whether it be a corporate project, building a church building as a church family. The psalm I want us to reflect on this morning is Psalm 127. It is a psalm that reminds us that apart from God, we can do nothing. And that essentially is the main message I want us to take from our study this morning. This is a really important truth to be reminded of as Christians, that apart from God, we can do nothing. Because in our culture of out-of-control drivenness, it is easy to get on with things at times as if everything weighs on us and depends on us ultimately. We find ourselves burning the candle at both ends. We find ourselves carrying the weight of the world on our shoulders. And sometimes we live with a constant experience of a pressure on us. Well, Psalm 127 is in our Bibles to rescue us from the stress that accompanies trying to do things in our own strength. It's here to remind us, God is God and we are not. He is strong and all-sufficient. We are weak and deeply needy. Psalm 127 is in our Bibles to help liberate us from the tyranny of unhealthy, self-focused, God-forgetting drivenness. Over against our cultural narrative that challenges us to become self-made men or women, this psalm teaches us to strive to become God-dependent men and women. It invites us to work hard in every area of life, yes, but always with a deep sense of dependence on God, remembering that ultimately, apart from him, we can do nothing. Where many passages in the Bible call us to respond by doing something or not doing something, the goal of this psalm is to shift our attitudes This is to change the way we think and the way we approach pretty much everything we do in our lives. 
this has relevance for every one of us. This psalm helps us to grow in our God dependence by addressing four universal concerns of human life. We're all involved in these on one level or another. Building a house or a household. Seeking security. We all need security. Work to make a living. And the challenge of building families. The psalm addresses these four universal human concerns and invites us to reflect on this question. In these four different areas of life, who are you ultimately trusting in? God or yourself? That is the searching question that this psalm puts before us. So let's look at this first universal concern, this whole world of building a house or a household that we read of in the first verse of the psalm. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Now the building of a house here may refer to the construction of the temple that was built originally back in these days in Jerusalem. The title of the psalm, after all, ascribes this psalm to Solomon, who was commissioned to build the temple, so that would make sense. But the context of the poetry of the psalm as a whole shows us that it's not just building the house of the temple of the Lord that's in view in the psalm. I think actually a better way to understand the house that is in view in verse 1 is to think of it more as building a household, Later, that helps us to put together the whole psalm when in verse 3, the psalmist starts talking about children and families. That holds the whole theme of the psalm together, the idea of building a household. This opening verse gives us an all-encompassing opening to the psalm. Unless the Lord builds the house or the household, those who build it labor in vain. Household building This household building project encompasses pretty much everything involved in the enterprise of life, the enterprise of life. On the most basic level, think of all the things that you go through as you go through growing up and doing life. As we move through life, we need food at a most basic level. We need somewhere to live. To obtain these, when we get older, we need to make a living. This often requires education, schooling, possibly for some university. It involves getting a job, growing up and becoming responsible and reliable. Some people doing the project of life get married. Some have children. Others will remain single and invest in significant friendships and family relationships. As we get older, we start to experience the need for care we feel those bodily issues and the age creeping up, the too many birthdays syndrome. Life involves so much navigating relationships, navigating work stresses, pressures, rest, good things, entertainment, hobbies, joys, sorrows, births, singleness, love, grief. Whatever stage you're at this morning in this project of building your life, this Sam and God, through his word, asks us, who is the ultimate foreman in charge of the building project of your life? Is it you? Are you living your life as if the buck stops ultimately with you? Or have you surrendered 
your life to God and said, Lord, yes, I know I have a responsibility. I know I don't just drive my car and don't put my seatbelt on and say, protect me. No, I know I put my seatbelt on, but ultimately, Lord, I'm saying, Lord, watch over me today. I remember when I was 18 years old, standing on a beach watching the sunrise in Senegal in West Africa. I had just received news that I didn't get the results that I needed in my AS-level chemistry to get me where I wanted to go in university. And I entered into a process called clearing. Now, that's when you really need to be in your country to start making phone calls to universities about places and where you want to get to. I couldn't do any of that. My poor parents were stressed out, saying, you're there gallivanting over in Africa when you should be at home sorting this out. Parents, I'm sure you'll relate to that. I remember standing there on that beach with the sun rising and I opened my Bible and I read Psalm 127. And I remember sensing in that moment the Lord teaching me that this was a moment where I would realize perhaps afresh who was ultimately in charge of my life. And I remember the peace that I experienced. I hope my parents got some of it. But I remember the peace that I experienced in that moment when I just sat and realized, you know what? At this juncture of life where I feel like the one time in my life up to this point where I've most needed to be at home, I'm not at home. I feel totally powerless to control my future. And in that moment, Psalm 127 broke in with light and help. And I just sensed the Lord saying, remember who's ultimately in charge of your future. Give your life over to me completely. And it was a moment I'll never forget. This psalm also tells us in this opening verse, if we're getting on with our lives without God at the helm, what we are building is ultimately a house of cards. Did you notice that word at the end of the verse? Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. It's emptiness. It lacks substance. What's it going to be in the end? Your life that you've worked so hard to build whenever you're confronted with death. Listen, any life that is built without Christ at the center is a house of cards, unstable, lacking stability and substance a mist, a vapor. So this first universal concern, this just overarching image of a builder building that causes us to reflect on what we're building with our lives, it asks us the question, who are you really depending on as you press on with the building project of your life? Remember, apart from God, we can do nothing. But with God, we can know fruitfulness and flourishing. Well, let's press on into the second image that comes in the second part of that first verse. It's around this universal concern of our need for security. Every single one of us needs this. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. This is a picture of city dwellers back in these days who would have posted guards to walk over the top of the city walls or to stand outside and keep an eye on things 
Guards were appointed to stay awake and protect the city whilst the inhabitants were asleep in their beds. The idea of the watchman standing out there would give you a sense of security. At least while we sleep, someone's got our backs. Well, the image of the psalm is so relevant, it's so searching, because it addresses again something that every one of us have been seeking from our earliest days, and that is the need to have a sense of security in our lives, to have a sense of inner well-being. It's most often communicated in the Old Testament with that beautiful Hebrew word, shalom. It doesn't just mean an absence of strife. It means kind of positive sense of well-being. All's at peace. All is in order. It is well with my soul. It is well with my life. This second image asks us the question, who are you ultimately looking to to give you a sense of security and rest and well-being in your life? Deep down, ultimately, is it something man-made or is it God? We can look to all kinds of things for security that are important in life. Perhaps two of the main things we look to throughout life for security are relationships and money. Money is important. Of course it is. It's good to work hard, to get a good job, to make a living. In fact, Scripture calls us to do this. But we all know if money becomes an ultimate thing in our lives, it ultimately makes us anxious. Again, with relationships. Relationships are so important. In fact, I heard it once said that your life is only ever as good as the quality of your relationships. I think that's a good uh, word. You think of how much stress you've experienced in life through relationships. Worries about your children, your grandchildren. Stress with that person at work that you just are like, oh, my anxiety levels rise the, moment, rise the moment I set eyes on them. And yet think of all the blessings that you've derived from relationships in life. The joy and the encouragement, the, the satisfaction. Relationships are wonderful, but once again, if we make our relationships our ultimate place where we draw security from, we will be left disappointed. For example, if you're single and you keep saying, well, if Mr. and Miss or Mr. or Miss Wright would come along, that would give me then everything I need. That would give me my security. That would give me my contentment. You might end up being disappointed. Either you will stay single and be disappointed, or you'll get married and find that that person cannot deliver what you thought they could deliver. Because remember, nothing man made, nothing created can ultimately give us the satisfaction and contentment that we were made to know only in God. Or if your spouse becomes your security, who will help your breaking heart when you bury them? If they're your savior, Tim Keller said this, if your spouse is your savior, who will comfort your breaking heart when you stand at the grave of your spouse? Remember, ultimate security, ultimate shalom, ultimate contentment, it can only come from the living God. And then when we are seeking that contentment in God, He blesses us in so many ways with well-ordered work lives, well-ordered finances, well-ordered relationships. He flows so much of that blessing and contentment through our well-ordered desires. Today we use the term 
insecurity to describe the kind of anxiety we feel when we worry too much about how we're perceived by others. I wonder, is there anyone here this morning and you struggle with insecurity? The answer to that question is yes. We all on differing levels struggle with insecurity. In fact, it was one of the first results of the fall in the Garden of Eden. What did Adam and Eve do the moment they sinned? They felt shame. They felt insecure. They ran to cover themselves because of that inherent insecurity. Their glory covering, essentially, had been torn off them through their sin, and they realized that there was a brokenness that made them feel there was something deeply wrong. Often insecurity comes because we feel in relationships, we feel that we have to prove our worth. And so we go out of our way to build an identity that will show the world that I'm of worth. But what does this end up doing? Where does that end? It ends up with exhaustion. We lose ourselves in this endless pursuit of being well thought of by people. And we lose ourselves because all we start to do is present ourselves, present ourselves to get that person to like me. And then we forget actually who we are when we're not just trying to impress people. A few years ago, I read a line in a book on leadership that defined sanctification as the process of God's Spirit moving us away from behaviors motivated by fear and self-protection to a place of trust and abandonment to God. From the ego's desperate attempts to control the outcomes of our lives to an ability to give ourselves over to the will of God. I find that so helpful. Here's what growth and maturity looks like as a Christian. Moving away from behaviors motivated by self-protection and fear and self-preservation to motives and a life that is handed over entirely to God. Remember what Jesus taught us in Matthew 6. Therefore, I tell you, don't be anxious about your life. What you'll eat or drink or about your body, what you'll put on. Is life not more than food and the body more than clothing? Jesus pointed to the birds and he says, look, God feeds those wee birds that are so insignificant. He's going to look after you. He pointed to the lilies of the field and said, look, God clothes them. He's going to look after you. And then what did Jesus say our job is? But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added onto you. Do you know what Jesus was teaching his disciples and all those listening on in the Sermon on the Mount there? He was saying, look to your heavenly Father for the security you are longing for. Look to your heavenly Father for the security you are so desperately longing for. So let me ask you in this second universal concern of security, who and what are you looking to for your sense of security? Honestly, answer that question in your heart this morning. If you're leaving God out of that equation, or God is second to whatever you've put on the throne, and you've said, if only I had that, then I would be secure. If that, that is not God, then perhaps this morning you need to pray and say, Lord, I want you to be number one on the throne of my life. Remember, apart from God, we can do nothing. We cannot find ultimate security, but with God, we can find fruitfulness and flourishing in this area of concern. Third area of concern then addressed in the psalm comes to us in verse 2, and this is surrounding the whole need to work to make a living. In verse 2, the psalmist actually presents us with a very powerful 
contrast. On one side of the contrast, you have the image of the hard-working man or woman rising early, staying up late, working, but working as if everything depends on them. We're told that this person is busy eating the bread of anxious toil. Now, the picture that this is to conjure up in our mind is the picture of the person who works but kind of forgets or just ignores the fact that God is with them. They carry the weight of the world on their shoulders in their working life with drivenness gone out of control. They've forgotten what it means to to cast your cares on the Lord because He cares for you. They're getting on as if everything depends on them. And what does that leave them doing? Eating the bread of anxious toil. They can't stop because everything, they're indispensable to themselves. They they have to do this next thing. They're trapped in the rat race. Well, contrasting that then, you get this very powerful image at the end of the second verse, for he gives to his beloved, his loved ones, sleep. Or rest. So contrasting this person who's, who can't sleep because their mind is so busy, they're eating the bread of anxious toil, they wake up at night, they look at their phone, they check their work emails, and they find themselves working in the middle of the night. Contrasting that person, you have this person tucked up, the electric blanket's on, all's well, they're sleeping, there's not a care, and they're just at rest. That's the picture you have. Now let's be careful. This does not mean if you struggle with insomnia that God does not love you. I know that some of you really struggle with insomnia. That does not mean that God is not counting you as one of his beloved that he gives sleep to. No. We know in a fallen world our bodies don't always work the way they're supposed to. Our minds don't always work the way they're supposed to. We struggle at times with sleep. And perhaps it's not because a million things are running through our mind. We just can't get to sleep. This is a poetic image in the psalm that is given to contrast restlessness of soul with the deep rest that the children of God are called to by faith receive. It's as if God is holding out the rest, of his, the rest to his children and saying, here is the gift of being able to stop and rest for a moment. He gives to his loved ones the gift of rest. Charles Haddon Spurgeon comments so helpfully, those whom the Lord loves are delivered from the fret and fume of life. They take a sweet repose upon the bosom of the Lord. He rests them. He gives the best thing to his beloved sleep. That is a laying aside of care, a forgetfulness of need, a quiet leaving of matters with God. This is a message for the person who's burning the candle at both ends this morning and who's on the path to burnout. You've got to figure out how to pace yourself. How to work hard, yes, but with a deep sense of your need of God and with an ability to receive by faith the gift of rest that God holds out to you. I am not a strict Sabbatarian. But there is wisdom from the Old Testament and from God's structure in creation that tells us that the way we flourish as humans is by having one day in seven where we rest. Are you taking one day 
completely off work? Are you receiving God's gift of rest? Or are you so busy eating the bread of anxious toil that your mind never gets a moment to rest? Listen, God does not want you to be there. He wants you to live in the goodness of the gift of His rest. We weren't made for the Sabbath, but Sabbath was made for us. We've been given a rest from God to enjoy. Let's rein in that out-of-control drivenness that causes us to fret so much. You want an example of this lived out in life? You read the Gospels and observe the contrast between the disciples and Jesus in lots of different circumstances. It's fascinating, actually. I was just skimming through this this morning. Often you see the disciples in a tiz over one thing or another. They're worried about how they're perceived by the religious officials of the day. They're worried about where they're going to get food from. They're worried about storms. They're worried about work. They're worried about their future. They're worried about everything. Anyone relate to that? And in this powerful image, when they're all fretting and stressing and trying to bail out the boat in the storm, what's Jesus doing? He's asleep. Powerful, enacted parable that tells us Jesus sleeps in the storm. It's because he had he was the picture of perfect trust in God, and constantly his example, his life in the Gospels teaches us to keep trusting the Father. You know, in that whole realm of security and how you're perceived by others and how we jostle to get people to think well of us. See, in John 13, uh, the, the passage where Jesus washes the disciples' feet. You know, the whole thing is prefaced by Jesus saying he knew who he was, he knew where he'd come from, he knew where he was going to, he knew that the Father had given him all things, he knew who he was. And so he was free to take the place of a servant and wash feet. He didn't care if everyone looked at him and thought, oh, that's just a lowly servant. When he was the son of God, he was secure enough to go to the low place of service because he wasn't consumed about trying to earn his worth in the eyes of man. What an example. What a savior. More than an example, the one who also came to save us from our frantic drivenness. Well, notice in the psalm, the builder's not told to stop building, the watchman is not told to stop watching, and the worker is not told to stop working. That's the same for us. We are to work hard to build our lives. We are to do what we can to provide security for ourselves under the sovereignty of God and for our children. We are to work hard but we're never to do this as if it all depends on us, ultimately. If we do that, we will carry a burden that we were never created to bear, and we will end up fretting and stressing ourselves out. If we put God on the throne and order our ambitions rightly under His sovereign reign in our lives, 
Well, we won't be immune from stress. We won't be immune from those difficult days and those moments where we're afraid of what people think. We won't be immune from that, no. But we will keep finding in Him a refreshing place of security and rest and restoration for our souls in the midst of all the rigors of this fallen world. Well, then finally, after this, in the last part of the psalm, from verse 3 down to verse 5, we now turn to the universal concern of raising children. This last area of household building that the psalmist draws our attention to is the whole area of thinking rightly about children and parenting in life. The main point in this section is that back in this culture, children, having children, especially sons, was something that would give you rest and security as you would grow older. The image of verse 4 says that children are like arrows in the hand of a warrior. That's again a picture. They, they provide protection. It's like your, your safety, like your, your bow and arrow, your kids. They provide you with security as you grow older. That's why in these cultures many people had many children because they, they knew mortality rates were high and, and if they had lots of children as they would grow older, they'd have children to look after them. It was about getting security. Verse 5 says, when you're speaking with your enemies at the gate, it does no harm to have a few big strapping sons around you to back you up. Children in that day were the equivalent of money in the bank, your private health care, your security. And notice how all the themes of the psalm start to come together in this culturally appropriate way in this culture. You see, so many people could start to look to their children to give them a sense of security, and forget that once again that security comes from God. They could look to their children to give them that sense of well-being, and then forget that these things come from the Lord. We have to be very careful in our culture that we don't turn our children into idols. Instead, as verse 3 says, we're to think of children as a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Now, the picture of the psalm here is saying, look, you've got to remember before you start putting everything on your children, living your life through them, putting all your hopes in them, saying, that's my future, that's my security. God's saying, look, remember who gives those children to you. He entrusts your children to you for as long as you have them, and you are called for as long as you have them to instruct them in the ways of the Lord. But the main point here is that we're not to forget security and contentment doesn't ultimately come from getting or having children. It comes from the Lord who appoints our lot in life. You see, we know that another part of the reality of life is that not everyone who wants to have children is able to have children. We need to be careful not to think that this means you are in some way not under God's blessing. No, again, in the poetry of the psalm, we are to understand that the psalmist is taking what that culture valued as blessing and security, and the psalmist is saying, remember, the security does not ultimately come from the children. It comes from the God who gives you the blessing of children. You see, the reality of life means we don't all get what we want all the time, but we are called to remember 
God appoints to each of us our station and our portion in life. To some, He gives the gift of marriage. To some, He gives the gift of singleness. To some, He gives the gift of having children and raising them. To some, He gives the gift of not having children or raising them. But the thing He has promised in whatever lot He appoints to us in life is that He Himself will always be our all-sufficient portion whenever our hearts ache for the thing we would love to have but we don't have. There's a lovely passage in Isaiah 56, verses 4 and 6, where we read, Thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths. Now, eunuchs were those who could not procreate, but who were to give their lives over in a unique way to the Lord. They couldn't have children for various reasons, and so they committed themselves in a special way to the service of the Lord. And God addresses people in that category, saying to those who keep my Sabbaths. I think that means keep finding their rest in Him. I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. That is a precious promise. He said, I'm going to give you a sense of identity, something that is better than having sons and daughters. And so we turn and look to the Lord with all of those longings that we have that go unfulfilled. We turn to Him and say, Lord, meet the need of my longing soul. Meet the deep needs of my longing soul. I would love to have this, Lord. If you give it to me, great. If not, that's okay. But I need you to meet the, the hole that this gaping desire unfulfilled has left. Come and just fill it with yourself. And God promises that His grace will be sufficient for us in whatever lot He appoints for us. The essence of this psalm teaches us that the truly blessed and secure life comes from faith, from trusting in the Lord and looking to Him for all the deep universal concerns of life. We trust the management of every area of our lives into the hands of God, knowing that He's sovereign and good, and as a good Father will always give us what we need. You see, apart from Him, we can do nothing. But when everything is rightly ordered under Him, we experience fruitfulness and flourishing. In closing, it's very easy to see how this psalm leads us ultimately to the heart of the message of the gospel. You see, what is this psalm about? It's about ultimately striving in your own strength to make stuff happen in your life instead of receiving blessing from God. Well, the essence of the message of the gospel is that when it comes to being right with God, when it comes to building a relationship with God, when it comes to being saved by God and being right with God, unless the Lord builds the house of salvation... All your works, all your efforts, all your merit to get God to accept you on the basis of religious observance or whatever it is, it's all nothing. If you think going to church regularly is enough to get you right with God, you are desperately mistaken. If you think that reading your Bible loads or being a good person or just being religiously upstanding, you think putting that all together, that's enough to build the house of salvation so that you're right and will be accepted by God, you are sorely mistaken, seriously in error. 
You see, God tells us that if we try to build a house of our own salvation through our own good works, it will be vanity in the end. It will be nothing. But God, in grace, has sent His Son, Jesus, who is the cornerstone of our salvation, the rock on which our hope is built. You see, we need God to build the household of our salvation. We need Him to be the one who can secure our souls so that they are not in danger of hell. We need God to do the works needed so that we can be right with Him. We need Him to save us and to adopt Him into His family of blessing. When it comes to being right with God, apart from God, we can do nothing. We need Him in every way from beginning and end to save us from our sin and to make us right with God. That's where putting God in His right place begins. It starts with recognizing that we are spiritually poor, that we need God to save us and make us righteous. In John 15, Jesus takes essentially the message of Psalm 127 and with another poetic illustration, he hits it home. Jesus said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Abide in me and you'll bear fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. See, Jesus says, just like a tree has a trunk, if a branch is plugged in to the trunk, all the life and the sap and the life of the tree, it flows into the branch through the trunk. And he says, but if branches are broken off and they're not connected to the trunk, what happens to that branch? It withers and it dies. So Jesus says, take that picture and ask yourself, are you plugged into me? Are you united to Jesus by faith? Apart from him, you have no spiritual life. United to him, all of the life of the Godhead flows and gives you Spiritual life. That's where your cleansing from sin flows from. That's where your adoption into the family of God flows from. That's where, where your sense of real spiritual peace and well-being flows from, being united to Jesus Christ by faith. Abide in me, you'll bear fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Listen, any life that is being built without Jesus at the center is a house of cards. Building a life with God at the center starts with building a life with Christ at the center. So let me ask you, have you received Jesus Christ by faith? Are you united to Him? And is that your one hope of being saved and being right with God? Then from that place are you ordering your work life, your family life, your personal life, everything else ordered rightly under the authority of the reign of God. If we trust in ourselves to save ourselves, we will be lost. If by faith we turn to Christ and say, be the builder of my life and my eternal life, it will be well with our souls. So, to close, let's ask ourselves a couple of questions in light of this psalm. Individually, are you depending on God in all of your life for all of your needs, or are you in subtle ways trying to make your life all about yourself? Are you depending on self ultimately, or are you depending on God? 
If you push God to the margins, you might attempt to gain this whole world of success, but you will lose your soul. Second, corporately, let's think about this as a church in closing. This church is the household of God. Who are we ultimately looking to? To build this house. To build the people up. Do we ultimately look to a new building? Will that give us a new sense of energy and impetus? Are we looking to our pastor or our elders or a new generation of committed members? Well, we all have our part to play. Yes, absolutely. But ultimately, unless the Lord builds Great Victoria Street Baptist Church, we who labor will labor in vain. That's about an attitude. There's a way to go about church life that puts it all on ourselves. And there's a way to go about church life where it keeps putting it back onto God. This is true for us spiritually. Unless the Lord builds the people, then we can all just work really hard and ultimately it'll be of no eternal gain. But if we keep giving it over to the Lord, He will build something significant here. But it's also about our true and applies to our physical building. We're standing with a mountain in front of us with this ambitious, ambitious vision to rebuild. See if we carry this project as if it's all on us ultimately. We are going to eat the bread of anxious toil. We're going to get stressed out with each other and the whole thing will be a disaster. But if we can humbly do what we are called to do as a church family, be responsible, and then we keep in our hearts just turning it over and saying, Lord, unless you do this, it's not going to happen. If we can just keep by faith turning over our vision for the future to God, then we can sit with peace in our hearts under a sovereign God who will direct things according to his will. Listen, if the building's to go up and God is in it, nothing will stop it. And if it's not to go up and he has some other plan and there's something else that he has for us, he will direct us and he'll humble us and he'll teach us and he'll give us contentment because he's good and he's sovereign and he has a good plan and he never makes mistakes. Come what may, he'll do what's best. We're called to tuck ourselves in under his sovereign goodness and say, Lord, well, we'll do what we can, but ultimately it's up to you. That's where you'll find rest. That's where a church building will go up and we'll not all get stressed out with each other. We will look by the eye of faith to what God can do. And as I said on Wednesday evening, though the mountain stands in front of us now, when we stand together on the summit, we will look back and give thanks to the God from whom all blessings flow, saying, Lord, if you were not in it, it would never have happened. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Let's pray. Father, at the end of the book of Joshua, Joshua looked out on a group of people who were trying to figure out what to do with their futures. Whether it would be in the idolatry of man-made ways of salvation, 
or whatever else people were looking to to give them meaning, security, and blessing. Joshua concluded, he said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He is the builder of my life and of my household. Oh Lord, I pray that each of us this morning would be able to reflect on our lives and these four universal areas of concern and how we're thinking about them. And may we together afresh surrender the throne of our lives to you and say, Lord, I want you to be the ultimate builder of everything that is about my life. And then, Lord, from that place with you being first, help us to think right about our responsibility, our households, our, our need for security, our work lives, and our thinking about families and children. Lord, if there's anyone here this morning and they're not plugged into a church or they're drifting or they're looking to man-made efforts to be right with you, I just pray even in this moment that they would think of that image that Jesus pointed to of the, the vine and the branches, the tree and the branches. And if they're sitting there going, am I separated from Christ? Oh Lord, by your Spirit, turn the lights on and make them realize that. And may they quietly in their hearts even now say, I want to be plugged into Jesus and to start the rebuilding project of my life under him. Apart from me, you can do nothing, said Jesus. But thank you, Lord, that at the end of the book of Philippians, we read that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. So we commit our way individually and corporately. And Father, we can't help but think of how this message shapes our attitude to our building project. We don't want to attempt to build anything, Lord, as if it's all down to us. In fact, we renounce our self-sufficiency. We can't do it by ourselves, Lord. Unless you build the house, we won't get anywhere. So again, together as a church family, we just commit it again to you and say, Lord, please build the house for your glory, spiritually, physically, and in every way. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to respond with a hymn that really captures the desire of the heart that says, ultimately not I, Lord, ultimately through Christ in me. We're going to sing, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Let's stand and praise God together.
now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you might do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever.